Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today for this roundtable discussion on emerging therapies in PAH. My name is Sudarshan Rajagopal, and I'm at Duke University. I'm joined today by Dr. Oksana Schloben at Innova Fairfax Hospital and Dr. Rajan Sagar from UCLA. So as we're all aware, there are a lot of exciting new potential therapies for the treatment of PAH. These include drugs like Cetatercept, new inhaled formulations of drugs, and new oral formulations of drugs, and then just drugs targeting new pathways. So, Oksana, we have a lot of options for treating our patients with PAH, but there's still some unmet needs here. So what do you think sort of the next step is in gaining better control of the disease? So, as you said, there are a lot of unmet needs. Most of our patients still do not get to low-risk status, and so we do need more therapies. We need therapies that uh, provide more vascular remodeling, that improve right ventricular function, and ultimately lead to improved survival in those patients. Um, Cytotercep data is um, very exciting. It's a totally different pathway um, for um, this medication, um, not a pulmonary vasodilator, and really offers patients, I think, um, hope for the future that there is going to be vascular remodeling in the lungs, which results in decrease in pulmonary vascular resistance and ultimately improvement in RV function. Um, and maybe in the future, either with that medication or combination of other antiproliferative drugs, uh, pulmonary vasodilators will not be a main step of ther- therapy. So definitely a lot of great developments. And I think um, uh, pulmonary hypertension community is really looking forward to more results to come from other drugs with antiproliferative potential. You brought up a lot of great points there, Oksana. So, Rajan, how how do you foresee drugs like this being incorporated in our current therapeutic strategies? We've been talking about upfront triple combination therapy for some patients. Where where do you see these drugs being used? Yeah, it's a great question. I think Oksana brought up some good points. I think we're at a point uh, in the PAH world of therapeutics where we're sort of at a at crossroads in some ways because we have, as Oksana mentioned, this brand new pathway with Cetatercept. And as you mentioned, some of the inhaled therapies like imatinib, uh, we have the serotonin antagonist uh, data that should be unveiled soon. And we're sort of, you know, assuming these drugs all come to uh, an FDA approval, how they actually sort of fit in with the existing regimen that we have, um, you know, with the two oral drugs and the prostacycline and prostanoid pathways remains to be seen. And I think one of the questions that we all wonder is, right, what, what's the best combination of medications up front? So right now we're so used to our sort of ambition approach where we have two oral drugs up front. Is that going to be shaken up or are we first going to shake up sort of what we do, we add on, you know, to, to the three drugs that we have available? And I think the future of all this uh, is, is, is in flux. Um, personally, I, I, I think that, that uh, a drug like Cetatercept, which has a lot of human data, this is not the first time it's been studied in, in, in humans, um, and imatinib, which we know had the 2011, you know, large paper, um, the Impress data, which was oral imatinib. But now we have the inhaled version. These two drugs have quite a track record now um, and have been looked at, I think, pretty elegantly and 
with good results in patients who have very advanced disease despite being on three drugs. So, so they're, 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 they're offering a lot to the table on top of, on top of maximal therapy. So it's, it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, highlighting that point of inhaled therapy, directly targeting the lungs. Oksana, as a pulmonologist, you've been using drugs like that for a while. Me, as a cardiologist, I'm not as used to doing that. So could you give us some insights onto sort of these approaches of directly targeting the lung with these therapies? Do you think they're, what are the benefits, what are the drawbacks, and what have you seen in your practice? From the, the, the whole bucket of the drugs that are currently available, we have um, inhaled troprostanol. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the prostanoid pathway that we use in group one pulmonary arterial hypertension and more recently in patients with interstitial lung disease-induced pulmonary hypertension. The uh, drive to deliver drug uh, not systemically but directly into pulmonary circulation I think always comes with several um, reasons. Uh, one of them is you want to put more drug into pulmonary circula circulation, so uh, really directed therapy. Um, the other one is to minimize systemic side effects. And um, uh, we all use a lot of, let's say, intravenous and subcutaneous uh, triprostanol, um, an effective drug, but uh, both mode of delivery and the side effects can be difficult for patients to to uh, deal with and, and bothersome. Um, so therefore, inhaled tuprostinol came to market. From oral imatinib to inhaled imatinib, there is also a story. Uh, one of the reasons that oral imatinib did not come to market was gastrointestinal side effects. It was very difficult to, to tolerate. Um, so uh, again, the hope is that you can deliver uh, a sufficient concentration of the drug into the lungs to minimize those systemic side effects. Um, inhaled serolutinib is also another drug, um, another tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, in the world of pulmonary hypertension due to interstitial lung disease, inhaled nitric oxide uh, was developed using the same sort of thought. If you look at the data of inhaled triprostanol, um, the, the drug is well tolerated. It doesn't appear to probably have the same benefit as, as intravenous or subcutaneous drug. It will be very interesting to see whether uh, the drug with antiproliferative properties mm -hmm. versus just vasodilated properties uh, can deliver more. So whether the effects on pulmonary vascular resistance are actually as good as, let's say, with oral formulation of uh, um, oral imatinib. And then, Rajan, to close, you know, we always talk about getting our patients to low-risk st status. That's sort of the main goal of our therapies. Do you think we're going to be able to do this with all these new therapies, or is there always going to be a group of patients who don't see that benefit, where just there's something different about them? Yeah, I think, I think we were all sort of shocked or, or sort of, you know, surprised perhaps by looking at the data of what happens to patients when we start treating them, our incident cases that go through therapy. You know, it, it, it turns out that, you know, there's a few manuscripts looking at this and, um, you know, maybe over maybe over 50% of patients actually are not able to achieve low risk status, let's say with upfront combination therapy. And while I think that was, to me, that was a little surprising. I didn't expect to see that number that high, but it's a gross reality. And I think um, the survival that we were hoping to sort of improve over time with the therapies we have, it's not very clear that we've you know, made a dent um, in that necessarily. And so this clearly is still a very mortal disease. Mm -hmm. Um, with median survivals, on, depending on who you read, you know, seven to nine years uh, on the best of therapies. And with that in mind, um, 
you know, we have we have a lot of work to do, I think. So I, I do think it's feasible to to get people to lower status. Now with the with the uh, group of drugs in front of us, uh, the question is how do we how do we uh, actually put those to work, um, and what do we start? How do we how do we use these drugs to the best you know in the best manner to get the best results? The best results would be to achieve low risk status in the majority of patients, and ideally to uh, improve survival. So I do think it's uh, I think I think it's exciting times because we have a lot of drugs um, in the pipeline and a lot of the drugs that even already available. And as you know, we still struggle with prostacycline pathway. Should you know? Should we bring it in earlier? Should we bring it? Should we use it as a third line agent? You know, when when exactly do we do this? We know what to do for intermediate, high risk, and high risk. Mm-hmm. But maybe we should be introducing the prostacycline earlier, as the as the French have suggested. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to discuss. Thank you for this discussion. I, I learned a lot here today, and thank you for joining us. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.